If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to the third chapter of the book of John. And we'll be reading from the first eight verses together. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say to you, except that a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say to thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say to thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell which, whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need you to teach us. We need you to illumine our minds. We need you to take the things of Christ that are freely given to us of God and make them to us. Put them in our hearts and, and allow us to live. Allow us to see. Allow us to, to feel for the first time to even come alive. That's what I pray, that uh, your people would be built up as we hear the beautiful, beautiful gospel, and also that we would tremble as we know ourselves better and we know what we are capable of and who we are, that we would turn to you with our full hearts and, and know your, your peace. I thank you for uh, this time and ask that uh, Jesus would be mightily exalted in this place, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll remember from the last part of chapter 2, it was a very sobering and kind of scary passage right at the very end. We saw that at the very end of, the, of 2, it said, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, at the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. So you had people that had responded to Jesus, watched Jesus commit, do miracles, and simply accepted them as miracles and believed in his name. And you would imagine that that would be the most amazing thing. These people are now Christians. They're following Christ. But that's not always the case. They simply put their trust in him in a, in a way or believed on him that he was the Messiah, that he was able to do amazing things that nobody else could do. But he didn't commit himself to them. And now we're going to meet one of these people. And this, this person is exceptional. So Nicodemus is, it says here in, in chapter 3, was a man of the Pharisees who was also a ruler of the Jews. So we're, we're talking about a fabulously wealthy, extremely important, very, very 
uh, showy person. There wouldn't have been anybody that didn't know who he was. Everybody would have known. He would have been the same as if you would have seen a senator in our country. It would have been that, that status. Or a member of the Supreme Court. We're talking the highest of the highest authority. And he was a Pharisee. So he would have had his PhD in theology. He would have known everything there is to know. And he was one of the ruling classes. So not every Pharisee got to rule the country. He was sitting on the board that ruled the country. He was the one that every important issue, he saw it. He saw the paper as it passed across his desk. He knew everything that was going on, and he saw Jesus. And he saw Jesus doing things that only God could do. And he was interested. Now, he, it says that he comes at night not sure what to do with that. All it says is he comes at night. I, I have a good imagination. I can imagine why he would come at night. I don't know why he went. Maybe he was busy. I don't know. He's a busy guy. But he comes at night, and you have to ask yourself why. Why does he come to Jesus? What does Jesus have for him? Now, you have to remember who he is. He's not just a, an important person. He's not just a leader of the nation. He's not just a very rich man. He is also a very religious person, very religious. So this is a Bible reader. This is a psalm singer. This is someone who knows more, has more Sunday school pins than you ever got, okay? He is the one who did it all. He, he did everything. He never missed a service ever. He had his personal devotions. He had his family devotions and never missed. This is a person that you really would be scared of. He would be intimidating to anybody because not only was he more powerful than everyone, he was more religious than everyone, he was smarter than everyone, he was, he was richer than everyone. He would put people to quiet. He would make them be quiet. And Jesus was at the Passover, if you remember, and he has just cleared the temple. That was all that John had mentioned. Okay, so you remember John only has given, in the whole book of John, there will only be seven miracles. We saw a miracle up in Cana, which was very, very, in the middle of nowhere, the tiniest little town. Only a couple families lived there. And it was a wedding celebration that nobody at the wedding even knew that the miracle had happened. The only people that even knew were a couple servants who saw what had happened. And he turned the water of, of purification, of being right with God, into wine. As he was basically showing a parable of his life and what he would have to do to provide for his bride. And then he comes down and he does some miracles in Capernaum that later they're going to notice up in, in the north when he goes back into his home counties. And then he goes into, into Jerusalem. So this is the first time that he's ever done anything. And we see that the first miracle was the miracle at Canaan. First one. So if that's the first miracle that he does, then he has never, he's never shown himself. He went all the way through high school and never did a miracle. He went all the way through his 20s and never did a miracle. He worked at the same shop day after day after day after day. And if he cut the board too short, he went and got another board. Okay, that's just the way it works. He did not do tricks. 
and, and he did not have a reputation for so. But ever since his baptism, he has set his face towards his purpose, and his purpose is to be the savior of men. And he, even, even despite his family connections, has put his, his complete and total allegiance to God alone. And the Holy Spirit is guiding him. When he went to Jerusalem, he clears the temple, saying, saying you're making my father's house into a, a den of thieves or into a, a place of business or merchandise. And while he's there, he's performing miracles. He heals people. He he heals people that can't be healed. He heals people of diseases that no one has ever seen them be healed for. There's people that are dead that are no longer dead. There's things that are breathtaking to everyone that can see, and everyone in town knows what's going on. So this is in um, verse 2. The same, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night and says unto him, Rabbi... That's just Aramaic for teacher. He's the teacher. We know. Now, my first question to myself was, who's we? I don't know if you do that to yourself. Do you do that when you're thinking through something? You'll read something and don't ever take it at face value. Ask yourself questions each as you go through. We know, and I just just wrote, who's we? And then as I thought about it, it's, it's the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. We know already that you are a teacher sent from God because nobody can do the things that you're doing if God were not with him. Now, it's interesting that later when we get to John chapter 12, the Pharisees are going to come and the leaders with him. So this is other people from the Sanhedrin. And they're going to accuse Jesus of, of casting out demons by Beelzebub, who is a demon that you are a demon-possessed man and that you're doing tricks because the devil is really doing these things. But, but really, Nicodemus knows that God does, not, God does not attest to demons. God does not say the power of the devil is such that I'm going to let him do a trick and, ever, and amaze everyone. Now, we'll see that, there's, that Satan's tricks are like Pharaoh's magicians. They're false signs. They're lying signs. They're not real. They're, 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 they're an approximation or a perversion of something real. God only can make something out of nothing. Devil and all of his demons cannot do anything close to that. There is nothing like that. And so when he says, nobody can do what you're doing, because you are not just doing cool things. You're not just a magician on the street corner that every town would have, would have seen. Big towns would have seen, you know. You can see it on television. You've got magicians on the street corner that can make more donuts in the box. And you're like, whoo, how did you get the donut in the box? That, that's stuff that everyone has seen. But these are not tricks. Jesus was doing some things that God only could do. And this man who knew better looked and said, you're from God, and we know it. We already know it. Now, it's interesting. Was he sent by them? Was, it a invest- was he investigating? Was he seeing something? Was he, was he a plant? You really don't know, but I do know that in chapter 7, he stands up for Jesus as Jesus is being lambasted in the Sanhedrin. 
he stands up for Jesus and, and, and basically says, wait a second, wait a second, and stands up for him. Now, he's put in his place very quickly. And we also see in John 19 that he's at the tomb. He's probably the, the one with Joseph that is bringing the spices, takes a lot of money to buy 100 pounds of spices to properly bury a body. And he and, and, and the rich are doing this. Remember Isaiah said that he would be with the rich in his death. So this is, this is Nicodemus. I would say he's a believer at the end of this book. I believe he's a believer. I don't know. I see that there's evidences. But he wasn't a believer when he comes. He knows he's from God, and that's all. He's saying that God has sent him, and I think that's really that's good thinking, sound thinking. But Jesus immediately interrupts him. Let's read from 2 to 3, and you see if you believe if I'm right. I think he was going to say something, and Jesus immediately interrupts him. Let's look and see. This is back to uh, verse 2. And the same came by, to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's almost like there's a two or three pages missing in between that, those two sentences. Jesus cuts quickly to the heart of an issue. What was he there for? Why did he come at night? Why did he come at all? Why would he come? Because everyone's interested. He, there's, you cannot raise someone from the dead or make a blind man see and not have people talk about it. It went everywhere. It was, it was like wildfire. People, people within the next chapter are going to be pressing in on Jesus so much that he can't even eat or sleep, that his disciples never had breakfast, lunch, or dinner that day because they were too busy. And they went from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and Jesus was healing all day and teaching all day and talking all day. And there was never an end to it. It was always just something more, something more. And this man needed to talk to Jesus and comes for an interview at night. And I would say that he had something to ask. I see in you something amazing. I see in you something that nobody can do. I see in you something I want. I want what you have. I want to do what you do. I want to be close to God like you're close to God. But Jesus never let him even ask. Now, I think that's interesting. He asked Andrew what he wanted. Do you remember that? The very first disciple who followed Jesus. And Jesus turns around and Andrew is just walking behind him, kind of lurking behind him. And Jesus turns around and the very first words out of his mouth is, what are you looking for? What do you want? What do you, why are you coming and following me? Make, and of course, Andrew didn't even know. But I believe that if Jesus would have said that to Nicodemus, Nicodemus would have had a big mouthful to say. But Jesus didn't listen. He immediately cuts to exactly what is the heart of the issue. Do you see, Jesus said, this was back in chapter 2, he needed not that any testify a man, for he knew what was in a man. And we're going to see from every episode, every encounter that we see with Jesus, every time that he has an interview with someone, that he and one other person is speaking back and forth to each other, he is looking straight into them. He knows 
everything about them. He knows them to their very, very core. He knows more about them than they know about themselves. And he is coming from a complete knowledge. And, and he did not need to waste his sleeping time by talking about stuff that meant nothing. If, if Jesus was going to do something in this person's life, he needed to cut to the quick. He didn't need to just beat around the bush. And so he just immediately brusquely says, Amen, Amen, I tell you. Now that's pretty cool because there's not any of us that know that word. Amen was the first word you learn because it, it's what you conclude a prayer with. If you agree that something that was said is true as true, completely true, and you're like, I affirm that, I attest that, I say yes. You say amen. It is what he starts with and he doubles it. He doesn't say amen at the end of a statement. I'm going to say something amen. He says amen twice, basically to punch it. It's the idea that there is nothing that's true except what I'm going to say. This is truer than true. I'm going to tell you something so important and so true that you could build your life upon what I'm about to say. That's what he's saying. He's calling attention to himself. So the first problem that I think that, that we have here is Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as a teacher. And I think that's a problem. You don't come to Jesus as a teacher. If I think that the Christian life is principles that I need to learn so that I can then be better at things, Okay, I need to watch my temper, I need to watch my tongue, I need to be patient, I need to do this, I need to act kindly. Then that's something that you could incorporate. I could work on this, I could work on this, I could work on this. But the Christian life in no way is this. No way at all. It is not. Nicodemus already had a PhD, but he was missing something. And if this guy could is one YouTube video that I could watch, maybe I could get what I need. Maybe I could understand that thing that I'm not quite getting. Maybe something would dawn on me and I can add this little bit to the million pounds of stuff I've already got and I'll be tall enough to do what I want to do. That little tiny extra, uh, extra pile onto the, a big pile that I already have. If I could just acquire one more piece of understanding then I would know something and be able to live a life that is fruitful. Do you remember what John said? We're talking about the book of John, and in John he said, we have received of his fullness and his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The Christian life is attractive not because you're smart or not because you know something or not because you've got it together or you know all of the, the, the parts to something. It's not a secret handshake. The Christian life is supernatural because God Almighty is doing something in you that he's not doing in your neighbor. That is different. It's not a philosophy. It's not something you add. It's not an understanding issue. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as a savior, and Jesus will not be treated that way. I am not as a teacher. I am not your teacher. Now, that's interesting because you think, well, there are principles of the Christian life. And I do want to be sanctified. I do want to be holy. I want to be like God. How do I do that? Well, I read my Bible. I understand what God wants for me. Those are things that I need. There are people that go to, 
to Bible schools and seminaries and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and acquire knowledge, acquire all these parts that do not know God. And I'm not saying certainly that all people or even most people that do this don't know God. I'm just saying it's very possible to learn the precepts of the Christian life without any power at all, without being born again, without being regenerated, without being new, without being alive. Nicodemus wanted to grow, but he wasn't alive and didn't know he wasn't alive. That's the problem. Nicodemus thought, well, I'm a PhD in this. I'm a Pharisee. I'm as good as you get. I am a lawkeeper. And he did not know that he was a lawbreaker. And he comes to Jesus to add something to his already huge, vast supply of what he has, you know, his pop bottle collection. And Jesus will not be another pop cap in your, in your collection. He will not. You cannot add him like another god of the Hindus. The Hindus come to Jesus in droves because what's another god? They've got 10 million gods already. One more god doesn't hurt anything. So it's no big deal. To, to have Jesus as your teacher means nothing. Jesus refuses to be your teacher. The wise of this world miss it. It's not about the wisdom of this world. It is the Spirit of God doing something. The Spirit of God does something. And when you see that it's not you doing something, it's something that gets done to you. And then when you come to Jesus, because he did right, he came to Jesus. And I believe, just from the little that I can see in the scriptures, that he became a believer because he came to Jesus. Do you see the multitudes who put their faith in him, in his name, in chapter 2, that Jesus did not commit himself to because they were not really his. They saw something that, they, that was shiny, that attracted them, and then you can go from thing to thing and just go off into your world. You're not changed. Jesus is going to tell him that something so unbelievably big has to happen in your life, that it's the same thing as not being alive and being alive. It's that big. It is so consequential that not only will the world know if you are alive or not, but you will know if you are alive or not. Now, God already knows. So once I uh, had a tree cut in my front yard, it was going to fall, and they were worried, and so they cut. But this was a huge maple tree, and it was completely, I thought, looked healthy. Maybe there was some unhealthy parts to it. So they cut it, and it fell in my yard and then was ignored for, well, I shouldn't say that, but I ignored it for a year. For a long time, it looked like a living tree because it was cut in July. That tree was green until the last part of August, September, and then you started seeing the spots. Then you started seeing the yellow and the orange. And it was, as it went into brown, it took a long time before that dead tree didn't look, look dead. And I can see that. I can see that in the, in the springtime when all the trees look dead. And then all of a sudden, you see the red buds. And then you see the little light, light, light green uh, greening on the top of the, uh, of the boughs. And you're like, it's alive. You're absolutely sure that it's alive. Now, how do you tell a dead tree in the woods? You wait until April. Do you understand? You wait until April. I can tell, they all look dead to me in February, but in April, that tree doesn't have any green and everything else does. I can tell. Well, you can tell if you're alive. And your neighbors can tell. 
And you have to realize that it's God that's doing something, and as he's working in you, he will accomplish his purposes in you. And, and Nicodemus came seeking a teacher. And he said, verily, verily, I say to you. Now, so when it said that, when it said that, um, I verily except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I circled the word accept. Accept is a very, very powerful word. It means that there's a necessary condition. You will not see the kingdom of God unless. Accept means unless. Unless something is true of you, you will not see. And neither will anyone you know. No one you know will ever see God's kingdom unless certain things are true of them. That's why he said, amen, amen. That's why verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you something riveting, something that your attention goes to. Now, you'll see that this word, it depends on which version you're looking at. This, uh, I'm reading from the King James, it says born again. Uh, I think other versions will say born from above. And it really means the same thing. Every time you look at this word, it means above. So, for instance, uh, the, the, the veil ripped from top to bottom. That's the same word. From top to bottom. Okay, that's, it's, it, he didn't rip, it didn't rip again. It ripped from top to bottom. And he's, uh, his tunic, after they took it off of him in the, for the crucifixion, was woven in one piece from top to bottom. Same word. But in John uh, 331, in this chapter, Jesus is speaking. And he said, unless you are born from above. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, the idea is over again. Do you know what I mean? Again, as in over again. So you're actually doing it over. It's the idea of flipping over from top to bottom and then rolling again and rolling again, top to bottom, over and over and over. So you must be born again, meaning a second time, because obviously you're born, but you must be born from above. God must do something in you. Otherwise, you will never see the kingdom. This is not something that smart people get. You have to realize there's smarter people than we've ever met that will go to hell. There are smart, smart, smart people. And if it was a matter of intellects, where if I just knew these things, if I knew this and this and understood how that it worked, then God, then I would be, have life. God refuses. No, it's not about the wisdom of this world. It is about God doing something. So he comes to Jesus, which is exactly what he should do. And later, Jesus is being kind to him and telling him exactly what he needs. But it is, it is something that that eventually he's going to have to realize, oh, I should have come to him as Savior. I don't come to him as teacher. Not me. Not me. When you realize that you are damned, when you absolutely know it, you'll come to Jesus as Savior. If you don't think you're damned, if you think you're fine, you will never come to Jesus as Savior because you don't need a Savior. He came to heal the sick. He did not come for the well. He refuses to deal with the well. You must know that you need him as Savior. And if you come to Savior, then, you, then he will accept you. Because that's his purpose. His purpose is to save sinners. That's why he came. He came and lived for us. And he came and died for us. So you must be born again. Everyone that comes, this is from John 10. 
Jesus says, verily I say, I'm the door of the sheep. And everyone that came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim and Christian are going down the road and three men pop over the wall. And they're just walking down the road like that they are. Now they're on the king's highway heading to glory. And these three men just pop over the wall and start walking like them, doing the same things they're doing, going the same direction they're going. And Christian says, well, wait a second. Did you come in at the wicked gate? Did you pass the cross on the way to this road? Oh, no, that's too hard. We only live over here. So we just hopped over the wall. And there are lots of people that will hop over the wall. There's lots of people that will say, well, I'll be good. I know how to be good. I'm a moral person. I'll be good. When I was at New Life, the kids vote every year for a, a Christmas queen or something like that. And essentially, it was a Christian character award, supposedly, which of our students exemplify the most Christian character? Which one is the most peaceful and the most joyous and the most, like all the characteristics that mark a Christian? And our Buddhist exchange student won because she was the nicest person in the whole school. She was nicer than everybody. She was the sweetheart of sweethearts. She, was, she had her work done every day. She was polite. She never said anything except something kind. She was quiet. Everyone adored her. She was everybody's friend. And they all voted for her for Miss Christmas because she was more Christian than all of them. But she was a Buddhist and told you that she was. Melissa has a friend that went to Christian college with her that married a Hindu because they were the nicest people. You wouldn't believe how nice they were because that's the idea. I can come over the wall and live like a Christian and think that God now has promised me everlasting life. But everlasting life comes when you come to Jesus and your sins go on him. And he takes you and stands in your place and dies in your place. And if you think that it's about your life, if you think it's about your practices, it's about how you act, you're wrong. And you will go to your place. You will live and you will walk down that road until you are taken from that road. You will be taken from that road. You can't be sanctified until you're justified. God has to look at you and pronounce you righteous. Then he builds holiness in your life, little by little by little. Except that a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. You must, you must be born again or you may not see it. If you've ever heard of the Wesley brothers, Methodism is named after a basically a jab. When John and his brother Charles were in college, in Oxford College, they were so, they wanted to please God so much that they formed a club called the Holy Club. And they fasted every day and they prayed and they met and they sang and they met together and they preached on the corners and they sent each other to, to Georgia to preach among the Indians. And they did, they, uh, one of them fasted himself to where he died in his 30s because he fasted himself to death, because they were trying to please God. And I went and looked up the, date, the dates, and he attended Oxford College from 19, 1729 to 1735. In his diary in 1738, this is what he wrote in his diary. This is John Wesley. Attended a small group on Aldersgate Street in London. Someone at the meeting read aloud from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. 
And as he listened, as I listened, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. Saved me. It was then that he had power. It's not religiousness. It's not I want to serve God. That's not being a Christian. Being a Christian is being saved. Being saved is having new life. You're regenerated. You're new. It's old things are gone and new things are come. You start greening. And you're not trying to do it yourself. You're not stapling green on the edges of your branches so that people think that you're green. It's not a matter of you doing anything. It is a matter of God doing everything. But something very unusual is different. Because the new birth and the first birth are different. They're different in some ways, but they're the same in some ways. The first birth, I had nothing to do with. I, I can't participate in my birth. I had no, it wasn't my plan to be born. I didn't know anything about it. I don't even have a memory of that day. And nobody does. No one knows. You didn't participate. You didn't make it happen. It was done to you. In fact, there is no word for birth. You can't say I, was, I birthed something. You can say I was born because it happened to you. That's the only way you can express it. And the same thing is true, that there's something that happens, but it's something required of you. You must go to Jesus. You must look at Jesus and you must see who he is and you must put your trust in him. In that way, you are responsible, but it's not you. A holy seed was planted in your heart on your birthday by God Almighty, and he will make you all the way to glory. Do you realize how comforting that is? God did it. It'll happen. When I say it'll happen, it'll happen. It will happen. God is God. That means that he will take you all the way. If you do not see sanctification in your hands, God does. God sees it because he knows you're alive, because he made you alive. When we get to Ephesians, Paul says he quickened us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive in Jesus. For grace, you have been saved through faith. That's what that is. That whole second part of Ephesians, that's what it is. And what we read to, to Gay earlier is the just shall live by faith. If you are just, if God looks at you and says, not guilty, righteous as clean as me, you will live by your faith. You are putting your faith continuously, continuously, continuously in the Son of God. You're putting every egg in that basket. God saves you through Jesus. And to come to him as Savior, he'll accept you as Savior. To come to him as teacher so that you can have more will only damn you to hell. And that is amazing. You could learn the same things. But God will not use it in your life for your good. It will not be all things for your good because it's all things of good who belong to God. That they are children of God, that God birthed them. And that is something that you then can't, you can't take credit for. It is only them. This is 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness. Neither can they know him but they're, because they're spiritually discerned. Emma read that there were five virgins who had no oil in their lamp, but they were waiting for the wedding like everybody else. 
but while the, t the bridegroom was tearing and everybody was asleep, then they all wake up and they have no oil. And while they're going to buy it, the bridegroom comes and the door is slammed and he says, I don't know you. I don't know you. There is no safety. There's no, there is, it's not about doing something. It's not about making plans for something. Is it a life? And you should be able to see. Now, hopefully, hopefully, next week I'm going to look at what are the evidences that you're born again. And I'm going to take every one of them from a scripture. There are enough scriptures, as many, that says in the scripture, you are born if. You know that you're born of God if. This is how you know that you're born of God. When? Okay? That you know certain things. Something, something that you can see that you can actually objectively know. Is that true of me? That you'll know that you're born again. Because there is... There's nobody that could ever preach in a pulpit that would not be cruel to you and not tell you to look at your life and see, are you trusting in the Son of God? Is your faith in him? Have you been born again? Because you must be born again. Not only will you not see it, Jesus in the next verse says, you will not enter it. So 4 says, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Okay, this is a PhD. He's not an idiot. He's being, he's being snarky. He's being cynical. But it basically is saying, what are you talking about? That's what he's saying. Because he's, he's saying that I look at what you just said and despise it. And Jesus doesn't leave him. Do you see the mercy Jesus doesn't leave you when you're an idiot. Jesus doesn't leave you when you're mean to him or when you're stupid and when you're, you're cutting your own throat with your own knife. Jesus does not leave you. He works in your heart. And he works through people that love you and he works directly. And he said, Verily I say, unless a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Okay, now the danger of of preaching word by word by word through the Bible is that you have to come to every word in the Bible. That's the problem. I have the slightest idea what water means. It has been argued by countless thousands of theologians and scholars for centuries. Okay? So I wrote down some. It means you must be baptized, which I laugh at because why would Jesus talk to Nicodemus about that? We were speaking at Bible study on Wednesday about the fact that you can't jump into somebody else's time with your time and your understanding and, and say, okay, I know what that means. Oh, he's talking about water. Oh, he's talking about baptism. That means nothing to Nicodemus. It couldn't be that. Do you see? He's not talking to me. He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is listening to Jesus talk. That means Jesus must be speaking something that he's talking about and that they understand. Otherwise, it's not a conversation. Do you see? Jesus is not talking to Nicodemus, but really talking to me. I get to see this thing because it's recorded in the scripture, but he's talking to Nicodemus. Now, I've thought, well, I've heard also that it's, the water would be like the amniotic fluid, and it's the first birth. That you must be born first, and then now you're a human, and now humans can be saved. I, I don't know. I just think it's easier. Truly, I just think it's easier. I think it's what we, what we read in Ezekiel. I will clean you from your idols with pure water. 
and I will make you loathe yourself that you were so despisable to me when I clean you and I bless you and I make you successful and then you know that I did it and now the heathen will know that I'm God because I was big enough to take my people all the way, even the ones who hate me, I will take all the way and I will clean you with pure water. So I believe that really what he's saying to, to Nicodemus is you have to be, you're spiritually dead, Nicodemus, and you must be resurrected, and you are impure, and you must be purified. And if you are not purified, and you are not risen from the dead, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And I just think that that is, that, that's shocking, because later the Jews, many of the Pharisees, who just, they double down and say, no, 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 I am, uh, we are sons of Abraham, so we are saved because of, of who we are, and it's not who we are. It is you come to Christ and Christ saves you. That, that's all it is. Now then he says, this is verse 7, Marvel not that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it lists us, and you hear the, the sound of it, but you can't tell whence it comes and whether it goes. So everyone is born of the Spirit. Now this is a play on words. Two weeks ago, I was helping the eighth graders with their homework at after school. And they all had a paper that they had to come up with original play on words. Okay, now I know you, you probably know what it is. It's a joke. It is a word that's used either two different ways or it can mean the same thing in different contexts or anything. It's a joke, all right? So here's my two favorite ones from the eighth graders, okay? This is from Webster County High School, okay? My, uh, the one was, let me see, I wrote it down. Um, Oh, I'm reading a book about anti-gravity. I just couldn't put it down. I thought that was funny. But my, the funny, funny one, and the, fun, the one that I thought was really funny is, I told my wife she was drawing her eyebrows on too high. She looked surprised. <laughs> it's a play on words. That's all it is. And this is a play on words. He said, the wind blows where it wants to. The word for wind and the word for spirit is the same word. It's the same word. So he said, the spirit is required, and it's like the wind with the same word. The wind blows where it wants to, and you, you don't know where it's coming from because you can't see it, but it's coming from somewhere, and it's going to somewhere, but you can't see where it's going. It's powerful, but it's invisible, and you can see the effects of it, but you can't control it. And that's what the spirit does. The spirit that you can't see is doing something in the life of a repentant sinner, something amazing, something transformative, something new, something beyond belief, something that only God can do. Do you see why John's including this? This is not a miracle. This is how God does miracles. This is the, this is the underside of the miracle. Looking at it would, would say that Jesus can do it, but this is Jesus describing it, that God is making alive. God is planting something, and it will grow. And the, the, the servants come and say, there's tares growing up among the wheat. And, and the, the owner said, yes, my enemy did that. While we were asleep, he snuck in and sowed tares among the wheat. Well, what do we do? He said, don't rip it up or you'll rip up some of the wheat. No, you wait until the harvest. The wheat will all bend down because it's heavy. And the tares won't have anything and it'll be light. And you take the tares and you put them in one bundle and burn them. And then you take the wheat and you put them in my barn. That's what will happen. So something will be true of you that you will be able to see. 
And then it, it's from your work with the Bible. When you read the Bible, when you hear the Bible, when you hear it preached, when you hear the gospel, when you hear who Jesus is, your faith can be put into the Son of God. And at that moment, you are doing right. You're coming to God the way God asked you to come to him, and he will not cast you out. He will not cast you out. Anybody can come. Anybody can come. You come. You put your trust in Christ. If this is the first day in your whole life, hallelujah, then you're born of above. You're born from God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, Lord willing, next week we'll look at how do we know that this happened. Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you that uh, it is not about us. It's not about how, how slick we are and what we can do. It's about you and it's about your mercy. It's about your power and your grace in our lives that you would create new life out of dead, dead hearts. That you can take stones and make them into sons of Abraham. I really thank you. And I thank you that, that you are among us today, that your spirit is here, and that you are pleased when we make much of, you, of Jesus Christ. And we thank you. Please accept our worship in Jesus' name.